they're making their way out, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul had to say. In Ephesians chapter 2, he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he wrote, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In case you missed that, Carlos, it said, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, you and I, should walk in them. If you didn't catch that, the Apostle Paul wrote in the second chapter of Ephesians, in verse chapter 2, he said, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good morning this morning. Uh, my name is uh, John Reddy. I'm privileged to serve here as one of the pastors. And you may know that we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Steps, Journey with Jesus. And, and we've considered why worship, and we've considered why groups. And this morning, we're going to consider why teams. And honestly, Paul's teaching here is so clear, I'm almost tempted to stop and just go home. Because I'm not sure that I can add a lot to it. But being a pastor, I'm going to try. And so if you'll just indulge me over the next 30 minutes, I'm going to try and offer a few extra insights that may add at least a little bit to what Paul said. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you'll open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, um, this sets the context for what we're going to talk about. Uh, Paul was writing to the Christians that were gathered in Ephesus, a, a little corner of modern-day Turkey. And the truth is, this 10th verse that we're going to look at is actually the tail end of a huge, long sentence in Greek that starts all the way back in verse 1. And in that verse, in that whole stretch, he writes about how God lavishes his grace upon Christians through his saving initiative, not through ours. You see, we're born hopeless and helpless as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we live our lives before we're introduced to Christ, may I say, as the walking dead. Spiritual zombies that don't really have an inclination or even a responsiveness to the love that God pours out as our creator. Instead, our energies and most of our passions are aligned with serving ourselves. And even when we rally ourselves to serve the needs of others, fundamentally, there's probably a lot of self-serving going on anyhow. The scriptures use a term and say that when we're in that condition that we're, we're lost. That just means we're distant and we're alienated from God. But in this second chapter, Paul says that God provides hope for us where we can be made alive in Christ and we can be changed by his spirit in saving faith by admitting our sin, looking to the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and then confessing him as, Paul says, a Lord, a master, a savior. And it's at that point, that understanding, that we get down to this 10th verse. We are his workmanship, workmanship. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we look at this scripture this morning, I'm going to ask that you would just bow your heads with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts and change our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and come before you. Amen and amen. For we are his workmanship. It's not a term that we hear used commonly today in a world that has lots of mass-produced products and common items. Paul could have, it could have been translated maybe creation. That might help us a little bit. It conveys the idea of craftsmanship. There's a design, there's an originator, there's a creator, there's somebody who is moved beyond just the mundane. Uh, it would be helpful perhaps if you thought of a uh, pottery wheel where a potter would make a unique water jar instead of maybe just the mass-produced terracotta pot pots that I'm putting out in my backyard as the weather gets nicer. This reference to workmanship that Paul writes, we should think of it as a work of art, a handiwork, maybe a masterpiece would help you to think about it. And because we use that term, it rightly puts the emphasis on God's skill, on his intelligent design in the act of actually making us. In Romans 1, Paul uses this term to refer to the creation of all that we see in nature. And because he uses this term here, we're encouraged to have wonderment and amazement in the beauty of the Creator in making us, for we are His making. In fact, here, if we could kind of look at the original language, we'd see Paul does something kind of unique. He places an incredible emphasis on the word His. It's almost like he underlines it six times puts it in bold caps so that we can't miss it. God has given us his personal attention in making us. And so as he crafts us individually and with full of mercy, this becomes another evidence of his grace, his unmerited favor to us. And so one of the questions that I would ask any of us that are gathered here today is in a world that elevates self-empowerment and yet still suffers from incredibly low records of self-esteem, how should knowing that you are God's workmanship affect the way that you feel about yourself? My prayer for us this morning is that we recognize that we are the personal extension of God's creative energy. We are, the scriptures teach, a masterpiece. We're his handiwork. And that should fill us with a sense of supreme value given that the creator of the whole universe has decided what John Chasteen is going to be like. Paul goes on to say that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. For the Christian, not only were you created physically, but God has recreated you spiritually. 
Just as the creation of heaven and earth in Genesis 1 was accomplished by God apart from any human intervention at all, Paul tells us that those that are in Christ have been made in Christ apart from any human intervention at all as well. We are the work of his hand. We're miraculously made new by our heavenly father again as we confess Jesus as Lord. And the Holy Spirit saves us from the corruption of the broken world that we find ourselves in. And our renewal, our restoration, our recreation, Paul reminds us that it's due to God's grace, his favor, not ourselves, not of our own efforts, and that our new creation is in Christ, and we are now united with him in a manner that could have never happened if we were left to our own efforts. And so there's no room to boast in any of that accomplishment any more than there was any room for you or for I to boast in our physical creation at the moment of birth. See, we're simply the recipients of God's best favor demonstrated on our behalf. And because all of the followers of Jesus Christ are united, as Paul says here, in Christ, the church is created in Christ as well. And therefore, our existence, our very reason for being, depends on this vital union with Christ. And we become mutually interdependent one upon another. And this view is not from good works, but it's to good works. You see, pure, selfish, true good work can't be fully performed until we're renewed by the Spirit of God. For even our best and our most noble attempts at good works, before we're united in Christ, like I said, they have some form of self-interest at the core of our motivations. And so we have to be refashioned by God before we can do anything that's truly right. However, once we're refashioned, we can begin to bear, increasingly over time, good fruit through good works. The Apostle Paul was writing to Titus, and he put it this way, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who, Paul reminded us, gave himself for us to redeem us, that's part of the restoration from all lawlessness, and to purify himself for himself, a people for his own possession, who are, what? Zealous for good works. One of the purposes of the new creation that we experience in Christ is to produce good works. They're a necessary, they're a natural outgrowth of our salvation when we're found in Christ. The scriptures are full of insights on what those good works should look like. Galatians chapter 5 reveals the character or sort of the nature of those good works. And so we think of love and patience and kindness and goodness, just to name a few. 1 Thessalonians in the first chapter, Paul reminds us that there to be works of faith, 
labors of love. They're to be steadfast in hope. Our good works, the scriptures teach, are to be directed towards God, towards those within the church, and also to those outside the church who are made in the image of God and who he loves dearly. There's a wide range of needs that we meet when we move towards good works. Spiritual needs, emotional needs, social needs, physical needs. But filled with his spirit, when we perform good works with an, when, in an attitude indeed, the scriptures teach that we display the gospel, the good news that's found in Christ, what Paul's talking about here, and then God, our creator to begin with, receives the glory that he so richly deserves. And so my question for those of us that are here today is in a world that often seems like it's without purpose, how should knowing that God created and then recreated you as an agent of good works affect the way that you see your purpose in living? You see, my prayer for us that are gathered here today is that we would seize a lifestyle of good works and service to others so that those who God loves will see it, understand the love that motivates us in that direction, and that his name would be properly honored and glorified. For the scriptures are full of evidence that that is our chief end in life. Well, Paul goes on to write, he says, which God prepared beforehand, and it communicates the sense that sometime in eternity past, prior to creation, God was making ready his purposes for our good works. In other words, it wasn't an afterthought that God created you and then began to think of, oh, maybe they could do this and maybe they could do that. It's not, he didn't, it's not to say that he programmed us like robots, where we sort of are predetermined for observations and actions and responses. It's just that the character and the direction of the good works that he's made ready for us are parts of the necessary outcome in our faith. So I want you to think about this. In eternity past, the scriptures teach that God prepared the nature of some of the good works that we could do. In eternity past... Before creation, God designed providential opportunities for good works that we could encounter. In eternity past, before creation, God designed the attraction that we would feel towards good works when we were recreated, as Paul said, in Christ. In eternity past, before creation, God determined our design and our capacity to actually perform good works. And within that design, and I love this part, he actually prepared creative ways that we would take that design, we would take that capacity, and we would actually accomplish good works that were consistent with his sovereign will. You see, before he created us in Christ, he destined those good works and made them ready for us so that they would be within his purposes and by his decree. And the means, ready for this? The means for successfully pursuing those good works were established as well. The long-suffering love of the Father. 
the knowledge of the gospel through Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do things that we couldn't imagine. Jesus himself testified about this purposefulness coming from eternity past, that it's the heart of the Father's will. He said in John 5, I can do nothing on my own. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The coming of Jesus Christ was not an afterthought. It wasn't an accident. As the one who created time itself from eternity past, God envisioned the trajectory of his creations, and he set into motion momentum that would see his will accomplished. And so my question to us today is in a world that, I don't know about you, but often seems chaotic and unstable, how should knowing that God has a sovereign will and a plan that stretches back as far as time itself cause you to experience greater confidence in the midst of a chaotic and random world. My prayer for us is that that we could deeply appreciate God's preparation. It's necessary for us to be able to accomplish the good works that he's asked us to move towards. And then lastly, Paul comes in and he says that we should walk in them. In eternity past, God not only chose a people to be in relationship with him, but he marked out a pathway for them to walk. And it's a pathway of good works. It should characterize our lives throughout the Christian journey, and it should be, as I've said, bring glory to God. In other words, God prepared this sphere of moral action for us to walk in. He gave purpose to good works, and he's asked that we actually and habitually Pursue them. They should become the elements of our lives, the domains that we act upon. I like what's said here. God has made it possible and indeed expects us to live a virtuous life full of attitudes that are consistent with his righteous nature, his holy nature. It's a lifestyle of good works that demonstrates love to other people. As a result, consistent with his design of us, his recreation of us, and his preparation of us, we have to decide. We have to decide if we're going to be faithful and obedient to a pathway of good works. I like what one commentary wrote, he hath purified the fountain that the streams may be pure. He hath made the tree good that the fruit may be good. He hath made us new creatures, that we may live new lives. And so the question remains for us is, so will we, as those that are in Christ, live new lives? In this verse, Paul uses the term walk to describe a whole series of decisions that that are necessary that we make, that that, um, we need to follow every day. And it's a common term. You, You see the term walk as a metaphor for the Christian journey throughout the scriptures. It captures the truth that as we move through this life, our deepest peace, our greatest wisdom is when we simply choose to do the next right thing in the daily path of good works that God has put out there for us. 
And this probably is difficult for some of us to hear, but our decisions on whether or not to do the next right thing is based upon the sacrificial nature of God himself who created us and recreated us. See, he expects his people to give. He expects his people to serve. He expects his people to love and to do good deeds, and here's the tough part, without expecting anything in return. You see, that's his nature. Remember, Paul started in Ephesians 2 talking about the lavishness of God, and as made in the image of Christ, we are called to live a life of lavish love as well. Additionally, he's not going to force himself upon us. Rather, the Spirit of God who produces all of the good works and all of the attitudes that are possible doesn't take control of us like we're a puppet, and he just sort of pulls the strings, and therefore we go and do what we do. No, he activates us. That's the recreation in Christ. And then he calls us to be responsive to who he is as he seeks to spread his love to others. And so my question for us this morning is in a world that often seeks after self-satisfaction, will you be responsive to the commands, the promptings, the opportunities for good works that God has actually placed before us. My prayer for us this morning is that we simply choose to do the next right thing. We choose to act when God grants an opportunity for good works and that we do that as part of a daily walk and a daily attitude in our lives. Now you may be sitting there and you may be convinced that serving is a right and central part of the Christian life. But you may also be sitting there saying, but I get it, John, but why teams? Like, couldn't I do what I do by myself? And the truth is, there are wonderful opportunities for you, the Scriptures have them, to be able to do things independent of anyone else in the name of Christ, to the glory of God, But I think there's, I'm going to give you five reasons, if you'll just bear with me, why I think teams, for most of us, is going to be a super opportunity for us. The first one is simply this. There is a biblical pattern of working together. It's uh, clear. If If I had the time, I could do this long litany of examples from the Scriptures. I don't have the time this morning, but I'm going to give you a few. Let's just start with something as basic as the Trinity, as mystical as that concept can be for some of us. The scriptures teach that there's three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, we hear as God is fashioning the world, let us make man in our image. There's a plurality. You could make the argument, I suppose, that Jesus had a team. He was part of a team. Um, In fact, the scriptures teach that the only time that he was ever truly alone was just for a split second on the cross at Calvary when the pain and the suffering and the wrath that fell upon him for our sin was so painful to bear that for a split moment, God turned and Jesus was alone. Other than that, check the Gospels, he moved within the relationship known as the Trinity. And then when God made man, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, 
He created Adam, and what's one of the first things that was recognized? It wasn't good that Adam was alone, because being made in the image of God, he's made us social creatures that need each other. And so he creates Eve, and there's the first team, and uh, the foundation of what we call um, covenantal marriage. Consider Moses the prophet. Uh, They escape Egypt, and, and the nation of Israel is wandering, and they were a tough group. And in Exodus 18, Moses is instructed very wisely by Jethro, to stop trying to do it all by himself. He said, why do you alone sit as a judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? That would really rally people to join a team. How about Nehemiah? Nehemiah knows that the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed, and he goes back to the people and he says, come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. In Matthew 10, we uh, hear and see the 12 apostles of Jesus as Jesus gathers them and he teaches them and they learn and he actually sets them out to service. Later in Luke chapter 10, we see that Jesus gathers 72 disciples and he sends them out, but he doesn't send them out alone. He sends them out what? Two by two by two. In the book of Acts, we see that Barnabas and Saul in chapter 13, the Spirit of God falls and the church in Antioch decides that, hey, listen, we need to send them out. But the decision is made by a team to send out a team to be able to be in pursuit of God's mission. The Apostle Paul, in almost all of his writings to local churches, continually instructed this idea in 1 Corinthians 12 that we're one body that has many different Members, and that's the fundamental nature of the church. And even heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, as much as we tend to think of us uh, um, in the cartoon sitting on our own cloud playing a harp, the truth of the matter is we're going to be gathered together, worshiping together, worshiping as a team, serving together. The, the truth is there's a strong biblical pattern throughout the entire scripture that says ultimately it's not just about you. It's about us. Well, the second reason is uh, the nature of some of the activities that we need to be able to do within the life of the church and to minister to others is simply done better when we do it together as teams, not alone. Some tasks are too big uh, for one person to tackle. Maybe the time required is too much or the scope of the project is too large. Some work, I hate to break it to most of us, but is too complex for us individually to be able to tackle and figure out. So we need a set of gifts and, uh, that are seldom captured by one individual. And here's one of my favorite parts, and that is that fun and joy can actually become contagious when it's a group or a shared experience. Here's a third reason. You can personally, and I'll underline that, benefit from the dynamics of community when you're serving together. And last week, Pastor Chastine did an awesome job of, of establishing for us why community and groups are so important. A lot of those benefits just pull over and carry over when we're focused on serving together as well. So, for example, um, you might observe a more seasoned team member as they model maturity and therefore have a, a model that you can imitate or look towards. You may if you serve with a team, break down social barriers that are rampant in our culture. So it may be that your team is multi-generational or maybe multi-ethnic. 
or maybe multi-something that our culture struggles with. You might be able to have others observe you and affirm you as you begin to discover the design that God has in your life. Who's going to affirm you when you're off on your own? There's nobody there to observe and to applaud. You can receive support in areas that aren't your personal strength. Or maybe it's your greatest source of frustration. So you need somebody to come alongside you. And then who doesn't like affirmation and celebration as we move forward and we achieve together? Well, the fourth thing is, the third was that you'd be the recipient of that. The fourth one is the opposite. It may be the very reason that you need to be part of a team is because you need to be able to do those things for other people that are in your team. You may need to be the seasoned member of a team. You may need to be the applauder or the encourager in a team. You may be the, need to be the one that begins the breaking down of social barriers within that team. You may be the person that offers the support in an area where somebody is frustrated and failing. Either way, I think that may be, for many of us gathered here, one of the greatest reasons to serve with a team. And then fifthly, our Medford community if we serve with teams in the way that Christ envisions it, they'll see the witness of a new community as we serve together. I want you to consider in uh, John chapter 17, the oneness that Jesus spoke about. He, he, he did this prayer, the high priestly prayer. He said, I do not ask for these only, Jesus is praying, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, look at this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. There's that unity again. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Oh, again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This is one of the duties of the church, of the gathered saints, of the followers of Christ, to live in community and unity and oneness as a witness to, to the world that there's something different. And one of the best places to do that, one of the places that the world scratches their head and can't figure out, is when we do it as teams committed to each other and focused on a task or a project or a mission or a ministry together, overcoming all of the barriers and objections that come, can come when you serve with a group of people that might not be exactly like you. And so as Redemption Hill Church, we want to get better as a gathered community. And when we join teams, it helps our efforts to make disciples who make disciples and speak to the world in unity and in oneness. My guess is that you're sitting there, at least one person is, with a lingering objection that I still haven't answered because it's the nature of the beast. Can't I simply do good works by myself? Is serving with a team the only way to serve? 
After all, my schedule is too unpredictable. I'm not used to getting up that early on a Sunday morning. I work or travel a lot on weekends. Truthfully, I just want to rest on Sundays. I have a huge exam on Monday. I need all the extra time I can to study on a Sunday. Joining a team is too big of a commitment for me right now. I already have two jobs, and I don't want a third. I don't give up extra time during the week to prep for Sunday. I don't have enough time to eat before serving. That was mine. How can I invite friends to join me on Sunday when I'm serving? I don't want to miss the service. I need childcare while I serve. I'm too introverted to work alongside people I don't know. I'm too extroverted to work alongside people that don't talk to me. I'm physically disabled. I'm too old and I can't keep up. I'm too young and I've got too much to do. I'm serving at a church. It's, serving at a church is not something I really like to think about. I don't know what I'm good at doing. I don't think that I'm very reliable. I don't see how it's valuable for me to participate in. I've observed some teen disorganization. I don't want to be a part of that mess. The teams seem like they're all set. Clearly different people. Why do they need me? If I let the leadership know about my new idea to serve, I'm afraid I'll be held completely responsible for it. It's what I call the black hole of volunteerism, the fear we all have if we raise our hand. Handcuffs go on, and it's a lifetime commitment. So, yeah, you know, the elders of this church... We've heard the range of concerns. We share some of them. Some of them, if we're honest, are true, that they're worth considering. Not all of our teams hit 100% on everything they do, but they bring the effort. Some of them, in light of the teaching we've had this morning, honestly, are a little weak. To be a follower of Christ, I submit to you, is to have a lifetime of service And in the life of the church, it's best done in some form of team. And so even with all of those possible hesitations and ones that you may even have yourselves today, there are some simple next steps that I think each one of us can consider. And so my third encouragement for us this morning is just to take a next step towards teams at Redemption Hill Church. You probably, when you came in, had a worship guide attachment that looks like this. If you have, we just hold it up for me so I can get it. And if you don't have one, uh, slip your hand up and our ushers will put one into your hand. Because I just want to look at this for a second. As our ushers are just making sure that you have one, let's just look at a couple of the possibilities that are here. This is an interest form. And so one of the first simple steps that you can do, there's no handcuffs going on to the wrists, It's just learn more about discovering your shape or your design to serve. If you'd like to learn more, you can check that box off, and we're going to collect these a little bit later. And there's a range of things that we can do that can just help you to learn. Um, You could simply get some resources that we recommend to you to read or to view or to hear. You might want to sit with a pastor or a leader um, and just have an exploratory conversation. We do this thing. I do it fairly often where I do what's called a shape assessment. I sit with somebody for about an hour, and I talk about how God has shaped them, their spiritual gifts, their heart, their abilities, their personalities, their experiences, and then try to help them match their shape to opportunities that are available in the life of the church. I'm super excited. This week alone, I've got two appointments, and this was before preaching on this particular topic because there's at least two people that want to understand and discover the design that God has placed into them. Another option is you could learn more about Sunday serve teams by attending a team interest meeting, and there's four dates that are coming up. It's a super low-pressure, 30-minute conversation. We can just listen to a range of Sunday roles that are available and ask questions, and uh, the meaning of that goal, there's, there's just one goal to that, and that is to offer you 
enough information that you can select one time to shadow with somebody who's actually doing that role. So you can look at it and you can say, can I envision myself serving with a team in that particular venue? That's it. You could serve on a Sunday experience team. You may already know, you know something? God's been really convicting me that I need to place my unique shape into service in one of these five teams. You can just check that off and we'll share that with a team leader and we'll get you connected. Typically the commitments, there are about one Sunday in four. And uh, these teams recur throughout the year. You may decide that you want to serve a team helping with a Serve Medford event. These are teams that are organized for what I call no-strings-attached benefit to our community. And it's a way to just display the gospel by meeting felt needs in our community. These teams are what we call episodic teams. And so you could choose to help one time as an act of discovery. And so uh, this summer, you may choose, there's three options right there. Who, who doesn't love going to a movie night or participating with soccer nights or helping out at a community fun day as a way of serving our community and some of the needs they have for young families? You may likewise want to serve with a team in a connecting event. A connecting event for us is the creation of an environment where people can feel comfortable relating to each other and enjoying each other's company. It's a very simple first step for many people that are in our community. And likewise, they're episodic. They happen. You can sign up to do one and experience, find out within that team where your gifts, interests, and talents might lie. And you might decide that you want to help with a focus team. Those are teams that are organized specifically around certain tasks, certain skills. And you can see the list of them there. There's a newly f uh, forming storytelling team. There's a communication team that wrestles with how do we message as a church to our community through social media, um, through electronic mail, through all of the ways that you can think of. There's a next team that tries to create once a month an environment for new people to be able to come and learn more about belonging here. There's an evangelism team that's attempting to try and stoke the temperature of how we consistently share stories, our stories that point to his story. Finally, you may have some real specific uh, talents or, or gifts that the church right now needs. And so this is a, a sort of a needs list. If you're good at administration, if you've got some history in bookkeeping, if you do a little video editing, if childcare is your thing, if hospitality is your thing, these are places where you could say, you know something, I'd have a conversation around where that might be best fit. And if we haven't listed something here and you're sitting there, then make a suggestion. Put it down there and let us know. But either way, our attitude, my attitude this morning, is what we call NGNP, no guilt, no pressure. I'm hoping that the word of God convicts our hearts to move towards service and that our discussion around teams is persuasive where you have in your mind the opportunity to be able to move towards serving in a team and discovering joy. Hey, look, if you're currently serving with a team, here's what I want you to hear. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you're experiencing joy in the midst of your service. I hope that going over this morning's scripture, I hope gives you greater confidence around the tasks and the ministries that you're involved in. I hope that you feel more equipped to do an irresistible invite to somebody else that desperately needs to discover their shape to serve, that desperately needs to find community within teams, that desperately needs to discover the joy that's found in Christ 
as we meet the needs of others. See, what I want you to know, the main point of this morning is that whatever you do, use your God-given design to worship God while you serve others through the community of team. For Paul said, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And walking the pathway, the lifestyle of good works, is often best done together. We just bow your heads. Heavenly Father, my prayer for teams is this. I pray that each of us may discover our shape to serve and then release it as worship to you. In my mind, I see the aroma of sacrifice and the joy in service as it comes up to the nostrils of God. I pray that you smell a rich bouquet of the many varied ways that we serve in your name. And I pray that it please you. For I pray, pray these things in Jesus' name. Trusting and believing the work that you've begun in each of our lives is a work that you will be faithful to.